0: I want to get busy tonight, get started. I, I know you come to hear not a bunch of intro and fluff. You want to hear about Jesus. And so we're going to get going in the Word. I'll meet you in the fourth chapter of Luke. if you Or I'm sorry, the fourth chapter of Mark. If you brought your Bibles, and meet me in that second gospel in the sequential order of gospels. Probably the first gospel in the order of the gospel writings. Mark was probably the first to put anything to paper in regards to the life of Christ and the bio of Jesus. Mark is a sort of a straightforward record of the biography of Jesus. He doesn't include the nativity. Um, he doesn't include near as much teaching, a lot more action. Jesus has a sense of immediacy to him, and he just runs forward. Um, the early chapters of Mark show us an almost frenetic ministry of Christ to the point that his own family uh, questions his, his sanity uh, and then you get into what will be in the fourth chapter and Jesus does slow down and begin to teach. He hasn't done a lot of teaching up until this point in the, chap- in the book, but he gives what is now uh, commonly referred to as the parable of the sower. I'm going to ask you to do the impossible tonight. And that is try to read it as if you don't know how it ends. Try to read it as if you've never heard it before. I say that's impossible because you do know how it ends, you probably have heard it before, and therefore when you read it through, this is why I, ask us to, why I ask you to try, is because when you read it through, you'll bring the ending into the beginning. So what happens when we read the Jesus stories, any story in the Bible with which we're familiar is we take what we know it's going to say, and we start to think about that as the story opens. And if you know how it ends, how many of you have ever watched a movie twice, And when you get the second viewing of the movie, you know how it ends, and therefore you pick up on things you missed the first time through, right? You go, oh, I didn't catch that the first time we watched it. I'm glad we watched it again, because I missed it. Because don't trust that guy, he's not who you think he is. I know how this movie ends, that kind of thing. And, and And so what happens is because you know the ending, it starts to color how you view the story. In fact, the story can be less dramatic. Because, oh, there's no drama there. I know who the killer is. I've already seen the end of this movie, but the music's trying to trick you. That guy's not who you, you know, that's how we play it out. Same with Jesus' stories, any story of the Bible. We read the story. We hear it in Sunday school. We hear it preached. We've lived it out. We start to hear the story open. We know where the story goes, and therefore we can almost dismiss certain characters in the story because they're not important because we know how the story ends. We really know what the end game is. Therefore, the details don't matter. Okay, it's impossible once you've seen the movie once to not know how it ends. That's why I say it's impossible for you to not know how it ends, but I want you to try. And I want you to do it for this reason. Because when Jesus gives any of his parables in the in In real time, here's Jesus' first century, giving a straightforward story. His audience doesn't know where it's going. His audience doesn't have the benefit of the cross, the resurrection, and the ascension. They don't have the benefit of the day of Pentecost, and they don't have the benefit of the writings of the Apostle Paul. And and they can't take all of the stuff that's going to come at the end of the New Testament and squeeze it psychologically into the stories that Jesus tells in the New Testament. Prime example, prodigal son, guy with two kids, they both want their inheritance. The youngest runs away to a far-off country, slops hogs, wants to eat of its food, says, "I believe I'll go home, be as one of my father's hired hands." He comes home, gets shoes on his feet, ring on his finger robe on his back, kill the fatted calf. Dad has to go out and meet the older brother and convince him to come in. Because you know of the cross and the resurrection, and the ascension, and the day of Pentecost, and you know the writings of the New Testament, you know that according to Galatians, we're not servants, we're sons. So when you see that kid decide he's going to go home and be a slave, you filter Paul right into the story. And then you know that you cannot be made righteous based upon your performance, because it's not works that does it, but it's God's grace. Therefore, when you read about that elder brother, you go, ah, this kid needs a good theology lesson, because he's out here in the field thinking he can earn his father's love none of Jesus' crowd had the book of Galatians none of Jesus' crowd had the ideas of new covenant sonship over servanthood what in their mentality it's hard to imagine who they thought they were in the story but they knew some kids who had run away from home and were having a hard time having a relationship with their parents And so maybe the younger brother becomes that kid down the street they heard about that can come home if he wants to, because maybe there is love there. There's probably a thousand ways you could interpret that story, but we get trapped because we can only interpret it one or two ways because we have the rest of the Bible. So when you read the Bible, sometimes you have to take a step back. And say, what would happen if I didn't, had not already had brother so-and-so tell me what this story means? What would happen if I hadn't sat through three Sunday school classes on this story? How might I view this? And a lot of times we won't do that because we don't trust ourselves. We don't trust ourselves because in some circles we were taught not to trust ourselves. People would say, you don't have the power to interpret this story. You better listen to pastor so-and-so, brother so-and-so, and therefore don't even try. And so we haven't really even used our legs to try and walk this out on our own or wrestle this out on our own. And so I want to challenge you tonight to try and wrestle this out a little bit on your own, to hear this story through a new lens. And I'm not a big smash down the walls deconstruction guy. All the time I've went through that phase where I come into God's grace, come into the finished work, and then just started smashing down all the other sermons I'd ever heard and all the other concepts of religion I'd ever heard. And then I got to realizing that you can't build a house with a sledgehammer. Any carpenters in the house? You can knock old walls down, but you don't build houses with sledgehammers. You just tear old houses down with sledgehammers. And so I got to where I realized if you're going to build something, you're going to have to slow down, change tools, and dink, 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 dink a little bit. And so dink, dink, dink on the nail a little bit, drives a new nail into the wall where you can put a new wall up. So I'm not here tonight to try to smash down other interpretations of the story only. And we might knock a wall down, but we got to reconstruct something worth putting up in its place and something we can wrestle with. And as I told you last night, what I always try to do is end up with a thought, not 12 thoughts, But a thought, you can sink your spiritual teeth into and walk out that door and say, what is it that I learned? If I learned 10 things tonight, what is it one thing I learned that I can really wrap my mind around? And and that tonight will be where I think this story takes you, is landing in that spot. So let's look at Mark chapter 4, verse 1. And I want to read through the story the way that Mark tells us that Jesus told it. And I want to do exactly what Jesus did, and that is read it with no explanation, because how many of you realize that the first time Jesus told the parable of the sower, he did not explain it. So I want you to imagine you have no idea what this story means, and he begins to teach by the sea, and a great multitude is gathered to him so that he got into a boat and sat in the sea, and the whole multitude was on the land facing the sea. And he taught them many things by parables and said to them in his teachings, listen, Behold, a sower went out to sow and it happened as he sowed that some seed fell by the wayside and the birds of the air came and devoured it. And some of it fell on stony ground where it didn't have much earth. And immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched and because it had no root, it withered away. And some seed fell among thorns and the thorns grew up and choked it and it yielded no crop. But other seed fell on good ground, and it yielded a crop that sprang up, increased and produced some 30-fold, some 60, and some a 100. And he said to them, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is a phrase that Jesus will also use in the book of Revelation, second and third chapter, when he will preach to the seven churches at Asia. You realize it's Jesus who preaches to the seven churches at Asia, the longest recorded sermon Outside of the Sermon on the Mount is actually Jesus' sermon to the seven churches of Asia in the early part of Revelation. And every one of the seven churches, seven being the Hebrew number for perfection and completion, meaning Jesus is speaking to the entire body of Christ across time. That's why there's seven churches, not eight. Seven churches, not six. The entire church across time, what does he say at the end of every letter? He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. And so the same Jesus in Revelation tells an agricultural story in Mark chapter 4, in which he gives a sower going out, casting seed out, and it landing on four types of ground, and the birds are picking it up, and the rocks are choking it out, and the thorns are choking it out, and the good ground is producing... 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold fruit, but Jesus explains nothing, turns to the crowd and says, it's not given for you to know the secrets of the kingdom. This is why I speak to you in parables, for as Isaiah said, you have ears to hear, but you don't hear. He said, I'd like for you to be able to hear, but you're not going to be able to comprehend. And then he moves on. And this isn't enough for the disciples who really want an explanation. And so I know that we need an explanation too and I've already asked you to do the impossible and that's act like you don't have an explanation and act like you don't have any idea about where the seed goes and if you'll play along with me on that, For just a moment and not have any idea what this story is about, then you're really, really getting close to standing there in the first century going, what in the world is a carpenter from Nazareth doing telling me a story about a dude that throws seed? Most of it doesn't even seem to grow. And that which does grow, I don't even know what he's talking about. And so that's where we land. And that's where the early church would have had to have landed and say, what is it that Jesus means when he says this? So I want to pause I want to shift gears and I want to take you elsewhere for just a moment in what is going to look like we are running into left field, but I've done this before a time or two, and I promise I know how to get the train back to the track. So if you'll trust me for a moment, we're going to run away to a verse that doesn't appear has anything at all to do with the parable of the sower. I want to take you to John chapter one. All right, we're going to stay in the book of John for two different passages And I want to use these as complimentary passages. They're going to appear as if they have nothing to do with our story. But then I think the light will begin to shine on something that is absolutely the key of unlocking the parable of the sower. And we're going to start in John chapter 1, beginning in verse number 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Watch this very important pronoun to kick off the second verse. He was in the beginning with God. He seems like the wrong word. Let's reread verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Our minds think it should say it was in the beginning with God, but John doesn't say it was in the beginning with God. John says he was in the beginning with God which lets us know there was someone else there with God. He was in the beginning with God, but John doesn't name a person. He calls it this strange word in the Greek that has... This multiple, almost rainbow definition that stretches all the way back to Aristotle. This Greek word logos. In the beginning was the logos. And the logos was with God. And the logos was God. And stretching hundreds of years back into Greek literature is a word that has so much, it drips with meaning. It's way more than just words spoken. But it is the essence of meaning itself, that everything that you can conceptualize is wrapped up in the best word we can come up with, logos, that inside of that is this, the answer to this question, what is the meaning of life? That's a great rhetorical question. People like that. What's the meaning of life? And people go, well, Jesus is the meaning of life. If you ask it in the Greek tongue, you might have ended up with logos. It's the best thing we know. It's the essence of everything that matters. And John flips the script, takes their word and goes, no, logos isn't an it. Logos is a he. He was in the beginning with God. And then he doubles down. And he turns the creative act into the act of the he. He. Not just God, but the Logos. Because verse 3, all things were made through him and without him, God made nothing that was made. Did you catch that? I know I inserted the word God there, but I wanted to differentiate between the two he's. Without the Logos, God wouldn't do anything. Without the essence of who He is, God could do nothing. And you say, well, what is the essence of who He is? And then you sneak down to verse 14, and John clears it up just a little bit. And the Word, Logos, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now let me ask you this. Your good Bible students, who is being referenced in John chapter 1, verse 14? Who became flesh, dwelt among us, and showed us the glory of the Father? If that is Jesus, then the same Logos word of verse 14 must be the creator of verse 3, He must be the He of verse 2, and He must be the Logos of verse 1. Would you agree? In the beginning was the Word. Who's the Word? Not what's the Word. Who's the Word? Jesus. Go to John chapter 12. In John chapter 12, Jesus is visited by a group of Gentiles. We worked with Gentiles last night. If you'll recall when we talked about Elijah and Elisha going to the widow of Zarephath and going to Naaman the Syrian and how God tells you that you don't get to tell him who qualifies for his love. A group of Gentiles come to Jesus in John chapter 12 and Jesus gives this bizarre answer to them wanting to meet him in verse 24. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat, I think your old King James says, unless a seed of corn falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain or it produces much fruit. If, and let me work this backwards. Sometimes if you want to get to the right spot, work backwards. That's why the movie changes when you get to the end. Because the real story is not the first hour and 59 minutes. The real story is the last 60 seconds. The whole story in front of it changes. So work the verse backwards. Do you want a bunch of fruit? If you want a bunch of fruit, the seed must die. Because if it doesn't die, it's just a seed. But if he wants more seeds, you need an apple. You need an orange. You need a watermelon. You need something with seeds in it. Otherwise, you got one seed. You want 20 seeds? How do you get 20 seeds? Go buy 20 seeds. No. How do you get 20 seeds? Put the one seed you have into the ground. That seed turns into 20 seeds. Jesus says, if I'm going to reproduce myself on the earth, I'm going to have to die. That's why when a group of Gentiles wanted to come and see him, he said, the only way I'm really going to be effective to reach the rest of the Gentiles is if I go do what I have to do. So unless the seed of corn falls into the ground and dies, it is alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. So if you want to produce something must die. Hang on to that statement. If you want to produce, something must die. Some part must go into the ground and die if you want to produce. Here's a quick review. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Who's the Word? Jesus. Jesus. The seed of corn must go into the ground and die. If it goes into the ground and dies, it will produce much fruit. So, go back to the book of Mark. I don't want to read all of the explanation yet, but I want to read just a little bit. And then we're going to slow down for a little bit and teach on some of this incredible seed concepts in Mark chapter four, verse 13, Jesus said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? Verse 14, the sower sows the word. I pause because I took you on a left turn off the track into what seemed like a run into nothing. And now I want to slam you right back onto the story track where the sower sows the Word. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And everything that was made was made by Him and nothing that was made was made Without Him, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Who's the Word? Jesus. The sower goes forth to sow the... Word. word. Who is the... Get rid of the what and switch to the who? Jesus. What's the sower sowing? Jesus. Who's the sower sowing? Jesus. Jesus. How do we know? Because John, who writes his gospel last, saw the Logos as a man, not a thing. For John, he goes, the Word is not what you say. The Word is who He is. So the Word is not just what you preach. The Word is who you preach. Let me say that again. The Word is not what you preach. The Word is who you preach. We've all heard a lot of what. We haven't heard a lot of who. Okay? And most of us in ministry specialized in stylistic what? Yes. Stylistic what? How we dressed, how we moved, accelerate our voice, pitch, bending, tears, laughter, dancing, crying, waving hanky, whatever it was, word, 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 and everything that came out, all the what was considered word. John disagrees with us. What comes out is not word. Who comes out is word? Christ is word. Now, take the sower sowing his seed. Jesus tells you the seed is the word. Therefore, when the sower sows, what is he sowing? Jesus. So who must the sower be to a first century Jewish audience? Not the pastor, not the teacher, not the evangelist, not the preacher. The sower... Is God the Father? Because the field of the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And therefore, whatever God puts into the earth belongs to God. And Jesus is saying, the sower goes forth to sow the seed. The seed is the word. Who's the word? Jesus. So God came forth to sow into the world Jesus. How did he do it? John 12, Jesus said, Unless the seed of corn goes into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it goes into the ground and dies, it brings forth much fruit. If God's going to bring forth much fruit on the earth, He chose not to do it by tanks and guns, but to do it by putting Jesus in the ground. Yes, my God. You hear that? When Jesus gives the parable of the sower, He's giving a prophetic vision of a Jesus cast forth into the earth by God, the ultimate sower. And the Jesus cast into the earth lands on, here's how we we always say that the the word goes out and lands on four types of ground. And so all of you in this place tonight are four types of people. This is how we preach this. All of you in this place tonight are one of four types of people. Now, let me give you, let me me step back here and, and pull the curtain back on us preachers for a minute. Because what we've done with this message is we've used the parable of the sower to mask all kinds of stupidity in the pulpit. Yes. We can get up here and say anything we want because we're the sower and this is the word. Yeah. Yeah. And so whatever foolishness I spew out, if you like it, you're good ground. Right. Yes. Come on, man. If you don't like it, you're probably thorny ground, or stony ground, or your devil-possessed ground. So whatever ignorance I come up with, and slap at least one verse on it, I'm preaching the Word. I can sit home all week long and watch Fox News and CNN, and take notes and get up here with PowerPoint slides, illustrations, and stories about Russia, the United States, the Democrats, the Republicans, legislation in the Congress and the Senate, what's happening in the Supreme Court, slap a verse on it, here a verse, there a verse, anywhere a verse, verse, doesn't matter where it is, as long as it's in the King James Version of the Bible. That's right. Slap a verse on it, call myself the sower, Hit the word and you the ground. And guess who loses in the sermon? Yes, you. Because if you don't like it, you're the wrong ground. Yes. I'm always right because I'm the sower. It's the word. Get lined up. Right. Fix yourself. You get to the end of the sermon, you go, if you got a problem with this, bless God, it's probably because you're thorny ground or it's probably because the devil's been feeding in your garden or it's probably, man, I've preached all that stuff. Yes. I've been Mr. Sowing of seed and the seeds, the word, whatever sermon I preach. And I miss that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And he was in the beginning with God and he was made flesh. And so if Jesus then turns and says, Hey, Paul, the sower that sows the word, the word is the seed. You don't get to claim to be the sower and you don't get to claim that whatever foolishness comes out of your mouth is the word. So when Jesus gives the parable of the sower, he is introducing the world to the, not the concept, he's introducing the world to the reality that Jesus, hear me on this, hits every soil known to man. Yes. And God did it. Yes. When God puts Jesus into the ground and the seed of corn must go into the ground and die, When he throws Jesus at the earth, he misses no ground. He hits wayside, rocky ground, thorny ground, fertile ground. Jesus has covered the field. It is not my job to cover the field. Jesus covered the field. The parable of the sower is a father who wants a crop Badly enough to plant the best seed He has into the ground. And the best seed that God has is not a clever sermon by me. The best seed that God has is His Son. God wrapped in human flesh and the Logos, the meaning of existence, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Because the Logos is the very grace, the very truth... The very essence of God. And if you want to see what it looked like, look at Jesus. And when you look at Jesus, you see God. And when you see God, you look at Jesus. And that circle just keeps going and going. And God, wanting you and I to feast on his Jesus, cast his Jesus into the earth. And Jesus says, so the sower casts his seed. And the seed is the word. The beautiful part about the parable of the sower, then, is that the seed hits everyone. That Jesus does his work on every single heart that ever lives. Yes. Yes. All ground yes. got a little bit of the seed. Yes. Did you see that? Yes. There's not any part that he throws and misses. Right. And he cast the seed and he missed. I've preached some sermons that missed. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> I missed the Spirit of God. I missed the voice of God. I preached a couple things I thought would be popular. I preached a couple things I knew. I preached a couple things I didn't. And when I say a couple, I mean a couple thousand. I've been doing this a while. I've missed a few times. I miss. You miss. The Father doesn't miss. And so with Jesus, His plan is complete. With Jesus, his plan is to put himself into the earth and die because that's where I'm going and rise up out of that earth because that's where he's taking me and then ascend into the invisible because that's where I'm going to see the glory of God in the realm of the unseen, not in the realm of the seen. And so God goes through the steps that I'm going to go through to become the transformed man on the earth. And he does it all in the man, Christ Jesus. This is why we talk about we need to preach Jesus. We're not just talking about a set of principles. Really good guy a couple thousand years ago told some good stories. Boy, he sure would have been fun to hang out with. You want to see a nice guy see Jesus. We're talking about the story of God, the Logos, wrapped in human flesh, goes into the ground to die so that he's not alone, so that God can reproduce himself on the earth through everyone who believes in his son, and you go into the ground and die and you come up in christ and then you ascend into the unknown into the unseen it starts ascending while you're here and it finishes ascending when you make it over there and that's jesus and that message is penetrating the earth now you've read the story though and you're cheating because you know all the ground and you know about the birds and you know about the rocks and you know about the thorns and you're going, nah, I don't know about this. Jesus made it everywhere bit because what about those birds that eat the seed? And what about the rocks that don't let it grow? And what about the thorns that choke it out? But I asked you to try not to. We do it naturally anyway. So let's walk through with Jesus, shall we? Because Jesus takes the story knowing it's over our head, way past us. And he fleshes out a few details as he's going. He doesn't exhaust it because he never does because parables don't exhaust it. But he gives us just enough details that we can work through the story just a little bit with him. And so that's what we want to do as we walk through this back part of Mark chapter four. So let's go back into the explanation. The sower, verse 14, sows the word. And these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. And when they hear... Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. I want to stop right here for a moment because I want to work on, I want to work a little bit on the seed and I want to work a little bit on verse 15 because Jesus gives us a very unequivocal definition of what the birds are. And this is kind of unfair to birds, to be honest, because you remember early in the story, Before he explained it, Jesus said the seed hits the wayside and the birds of the air come down and they eat from the seed. And then Jesus says that the birds are Satan. And so a very unequivocal definition or title of Satan is given while no actual definition of Satan is given in this text. The Hebrews would have called this character Ha-Satan. Actually two words in the Hebrew, H-A and the word we translate as Satan. And ha-satan meant the Satan. Satan meant accuser and, or adversary, the one that fights against you and therefore the ha-satan would have always been the accuser. Now, anytime you start to introduce this character, we all have imagery. There's ways of thinking about Satan, what he looks like. I'm not here to either prop those up or knock those down. I will leave it exactly where Jesus did. There is an adversary That fights against the word and who's the word not what's the word who's the word Jesus and so there's an adversary that comes in to pluck up and pluck out what Jesus is meant to accomplish but here's what I love about the fact that Jesus chose birds and how many of you believe Jesus knew what he was doing and did stuff on purpose like he doesn't stumble into a story get to the end of it go guys you know what I should have told that better I, you know, if I was using my head, it wouldn't have been a prodigal son. It'd been a prodigal daughter or, you know, something like that. If, if we don't ever see Jesus in him, in him elbowing him going, I got that one wrong, didn't I? No, I, there's a reason why he lays stories out the way that he does. And Jesus has birds coming and eating seed. Birds eat seed. But what do birds pass when they eat seed? Seed. This is why a tree grows in your yard that never grew in your yard before. Like, there's no maple tree in my yard. How did that maple tree begin to grow in my yard? There's one, you know, four doors down in my neighborhood, but there's not one right here. And you might first think, well, some sort of pollen got in the wind, blew it in, landed in my yard. But all those little birds you've been feeding at the bird feeder... They don't just eat, they go to the bathroom That's right. and they pass seed wherever they go. And the point is this, I believe, that Jesus chooses an animal that carries the seed into another place. Not so that we'll see Satan as carrying the seed, but so that we'll realize there's no way to stop Jesus. Yes, yes, yes that even when the enemy shows up thinking he shuts down the good news of who Jesus is, all he really does is watch Jesus materialize on the other side of evil and say, I'm still here, the church is still here, my Father is still full of love, you may have your violence and your wickedness and your hatred and your anger and your darkness, but light always somehow finds a way. In the middle of war-torn economies, there's Jesus. In the middle of poverty, there's Jesus. In the middle of prostitution and abuse and rape and molestation, boom, there's Jesus. And you go, how did Jesus show up there? Nobody brought a tract or a Bible or turned on YouTube where someone was preaching. I'll tell you how Jesus made it there. Because there's not a bird in the cosmos that can stop the seed from making it to where it's supposed to go. And it's not my sermon and your sermon. It's Jesus. The Father cast Jesus into the ground and the enemy's been trying to swallow up Jesus ever since. In fact, Satan viewed the cross as his first great victory. He silenced the Lamb. And then three days later, the stone rolls away. And the bird lands outside of Jerusalem (laughs) and the seed grows and here comes Jesus. And so the very first ground that Jesus, that looks like the wayside where nobody hears about him is Jesus saying, even when it looks like my dad doesn't win, my dad wins. In fact, my dad makes a habit of winning when it looks like he loses. Heads up, disciples. Anytime you think I've lost, think again. What looks like a loss is the way my dad wins. So that's why Calvary becomes this important moment of which a man dies at the hands of power. And God chooses to win through dying at the hands of power. And guess what? God hasn't changed how he wins. Yes. This is just a side note. I just want to toss this in for your perusal. Nothing screams at us as loudly and gets ignored more than the ascension of Christ. Like we don't preach the ascension in the church. We preach the nativity, and we preach the miracles, and we preach the cross, and we preach the resurrection. Pentecostals, we got closest. We would preach the ascension, but only as the lobby to the Pentecost. Yes. That's the way we'd preach it. Yes. We'd put Jesus going up into the heavens in Acts 1, simply so we could have him say his words of Acts one eight: right. Go, tear in Jerusalem, be in day with power from on high, yes. and you shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem. that we, that was the Ascension was just a prelude, but the reason why I think sometimes, and I'm off in the weeds here for a second, but can you can use, hang with me. Are we are we good with it. I, I'm not on the sower. I know. And you're going, what's this got to do with the sower? And I'm going to admit very little. It's got very little to do with this story, but it has something to do with just something that's been stirring in me. <laughs> we don't preach the Ascension because it doesn't line up with our drama. Jesus isn't supposed to disappear. He's supposed to come out of the tomb and wreak havoc because that's what you do when you win, right? You show up and you go all Liam Neeson on those guys, right? You go back to Pontius Pilate and you show him your nail scars and you go, look at this big boy. You thought you had me? Hey, Pharisees, get in here. Hey, Herod, you wanted to see a miracle the other day and I wouldn't give you one? I saved it. Let me show you what I got. That's what we want so badly. We want Jesus. And that's why we get excited at literalist interpretations of the book of Revelation. Because we think at the end of the Bible we finally get it. That God's been sitting in heaven for 2,000 years going, mm, no, I didn't do it right the first time. I'm going to get them though, man, I'm going to get them. I'm going to do it the way it needs to be done. And then we're going to get this reappearance of Jesus where he finally comes in here like the boss that he is and just steamrolls everybody. And what we miss when we miss or misunderstand that ascension is that the ascension is God's seal of approval on winning by being defeated. We don't like to preach the ascension because we don't like to lose. And when he goes into the ground, he lost. And when he comes out of the grave, we know that he won, but he doesn't prove it. He doesn't go beat people up. Instead, what's he do with this great victory? Disappears. And we go, oh, no, don't disappear. And all we hang on to is, yes, but he's going to reappear. And when he does, some people are going to pay. And odds are we're reading Revelation wrong because the lamb that comes back on the white horse isn't holding a sword in his hand. He's got a sword coming out of his mouth and his visage is dripped in blood. The same kind of blood that dropped at Calvary because he's been bleeding over his creation for 2,000 years soaking the soil of the earth so that God's victory doesn't come by shedding your blood. God's victory comes by shedding His own blood. Yes. And if we get back to the ascension as the day that God put his seal of approval on winning by dying, we could preach the ascension with passion and excitement. Because it means that the only way we're going to make it is to go into the ground and die. And that is essentially what happened when you met Jesus. He went into the ground and you died. And that's what happened in your baptism. Because in your water baptism, you... Once again, played it out in front of everyone who would watch. You went into the ground and you died. And you came up out of the water, a brand new creation. And you walked that creation throughout the earth and are still walking that throughout the earth today. And I'm here to tell you that no matter what the birds pluck up, the seed lands on the other side. Because no man, Jesus said, can pluck you out of my hand. Why does he bring that word back into play? Because pluck the seed is what the birds do. And so Jesus says, don't worry. Even if it looks like the birds pluck you, they're going to drop you somewhere else. I'm going to win. And I'm going to do it by going into the ground to die so that I can resurrect in a newness of life. And you're going to die with me. And you're going to live with me. And that's how we govern ourselves in the world, right? Seed is proportionally much smaller than its final product. Jesus could have chosen any illustration, but he chose seed. And he's prone in his ministry to choose the smallest one he can find. There's a moment in his ministry where he's walking through the farmer's market and he walks over to a seed seller and he takes the cap off of the seed bucket And he picks up a grain of mustard seed and he drops it into the palm of his hand. And it's so small that you have to hold his hand up next to your eye to be able to see it. And Jesus says, faith is like this grain of mustard seed. You don't need much, but if you drop it into the ground, it'll move a mountain. In other words, the seed has everything it needs. You don't have everything you need, but the seed has everything that it needs. So if you drop what you know of Jesus into the soil something big happens the reason jesus uses seed is because the end result is disproportionate to who he is you don't need a lot of jesus to go a long way the holy spirit had to teach me this through ministry thinking i always needed to be hyped i always needed to be hyped got to be hyped got to get into the zone got to get in the flow not gonna be able to get up there and preach tonight if i got this on my mind or that on my mind so I'm not going to let anybody talk to me before church because I don't want to take the edge off my anointing. No, you can't touch my Bible. I've been in that book all week long. I don't want you. I don't know where your hands have been. I gotta, that's my sword. I got to get up there and swing that for Jesus. So there's a certain level of passion and emotion that had to go into it. And we needed a certain kind of song. And if we didn't get it, we could play more songs until we got it. And you tried to bring people up to a crescendo because there had to be this feeling, this atmosphere, this palpable thing in the air before you could do what you did. And and, and the Holy Spirit had to take me into a renaissance, had to to start to, to shift and work inside of me and put me in the pulpit a few times where I had other things on my mind and put me in some environments called living rooms and pool houses and backyards and clubhouses and places where there was no piano and no guitar and no song. And somebody would just get up and go, Hey, we brought brother Paul in here tonight because we've heard he knows about Jesus. And we thought you'd like to hear it. And they just hand you a microphone. You had to go with it. And so I had to learn early and often, and this has only been in the last, less than the last decade, that it wasn't about me hyping up, getting up, bubbling up, getting everything in the atmosphere, right? Trust the seed, the seed is tiny, but the seed is more powerful than you. So put Jesus in the room and then get your hands off of him. So you put Jesus in the room and watch him work. Because if you let Jesus go to work, disproportionate fruit could come out of that room. And so I've watched God do something like what happened here last night and something that I know is happening here tonight. There is Healing virtue that walks through the room as Jesus starts getting lifted up. And it didn't have to be hyped. He just had to be let in the room. You just opened the door and put Him in the room. In all of His crucified, resurrected, and ascended glory. With the sword coming out of His mouth. And the burial dirt fresh on His person. And put him in front of the room and say, watch the Lamb. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Forgetting the things that are behind. Pressing forward to the mark of the prize of the calling in Christ Jesus. And then watching that prize go to work. And what you sense isn't hype and a formula and the thing we figured out how to do. But it's that presence of the living Jesus. It's the disproportionate seed who drops into the ground. And then, wow, yeah. what happens? And it doesn't all happen tonight because that's not the way seeds work. How many of you came out of environments where we wanted instant, we wanted co- like conversions yeah. that happened that we wanted to see people, yeah. Yeah. and we'd stick around till we got what we wanted, right. and then we noticed that they didn't. It didn't seem to do much to them. That's right. It's because we started we started taking babies out of the womb before they were fully a term and we'd get him in here and get him a little bit convicted and mom was about five months pregnant we'd cut the baby out of her that's the kind of conversions we had we just cut the baby out of him and lay it down there on the floor and say join sunday school see you next week and we couldn't understand why they couldn't breathe right and see right and eat right because we had a bunch of conversions that didn't come into a revelation of jesus and the father of love they just got saved because their best friend elbowed them yeah It doesn't take long they grow to resent the thing that they came into. And they can't wait for a Saturday night where it snows. So maybe they'll cancel church Sunday morning. (laughs) Anybody else come up in church environments like that? Just can't wait. Maybe we won't have to go sit through that anymore. Let the seed, the disproportionate seed, do its work. Here's another fact about seeds. Seeds do their work in the dark. They disappear. Jesus moves in, and he doesn't have to have your attention 24 7. He doesn't have to be fasting all the time, reading night and day, witnessing to every person you see, running to every missions conference, giving every dime you make to the church. He doesn't need your day and night 24 7 attention. He just needs you to put him in there, and you can take your hands off. Just put him in there, and just watch him go to work. And he's going to go to work on the way you think and he's going to go to work on the way you feel and he's going to go to work on your body and he's going to go to work on your mind and he's never going to push you and he's never going to scream at you to get up here higher come up to the next level whatever hell you walk into he's going to walk into it with you and he's going to hold your hand through the fiery furnace do you know why the story of shadrach meshach and abednego exists in the bible it's to show you that when you follow do you know who the fourth man in the fire was one who looks like the son of God. You know why that story is so important? Because it's God's way of telling you that you are going to go into hell. That's what fire is, yes. and that you're going to do it while you're alive, yes. and that He's going. Well, that's good. He's going to walk in with you. Yes. I, there's such a there's such a presence of the. Uh, I feel this father wants to say something to you right now. Just to hear that. Okay. The only thing that burns when you go in, hold his hand are the straps that held you down. In other words, persecution, tribulation, the fire that hits us. If we walk in with Jesus and we always walk in with Jesus, the only thing that burns up is the chaff that isn't going to do you any good. You have nothing to fear from the fire. In fact, you ought to rejoice when people say, God is a consuming fire. And you go, amen. <laughs> yes, he is. Yes, he is. <laughs> and he is going to burn up everything I do not need. He is going to burn up every piece of me that doesn't belong. He is going to burn up every shackle that binds my spiritual hands. He is going to burn up every piece of grave cloth I walk out of Lazarus's tomb with. I welcome the fire. The fan is in his hand and he doth thoroughly purge his floor and he gathers his wheat into the garner, but he burns my chaff with an unquenchable fire. It's the junk I don't need that Jesus is getting rid of. I welcome it. I'll walk through hell because Jesus walks through hell with me and burns up what I don't need. That's good news. Receive that tonight. Somebody going through hell, you're going through problems, you're going through persecutions, you're going through tribulations, you're going through the darkest night of the soul. You don't have to run away. Step into it and know that the Jesus who disappears inside reappears inside of your furnace. Yes. Nobody watched him walk in, but everybody watched him walk around inside. Nebuchadnezzar looks and goes, how many did we throw in? They go, three. He said, I see four and one looks like the Son of God. That's every one of us in the fire. No one sees the seed go in, but when he goes in, he stands up and he walks around with us. So Jesus chooses seed because seed disappears. But then it reappears. It reappears in the flower. And it reappears in a new plant. And it reappears in a fruit. And it never reappears by itself. It reappears with more duplicated over and over again. Your latter state will indeed be better than your first state because Jesus has entered in. He has done his work. I I know I'm going slow getting through these grounds and and I'm going to bring this all back home. At least I'm going to try to. I, I want one more. I just want to let you know, seed always works and it always works independent of your effort. Every example of the seed given in the parable of the sower the power to spring forth happens in the story in which the ravens take the seed he picks the animal that let that has seed pass through its body and that's why the seed grows in another ground because the seed grows somewhere in the rocky ground of verses 16 and 17 uh, let, me, let me read this. Likewise, these are the ones sown on stony or rocky ground who when they hear the word immediately receive it with gladness and they have no root in themselves. And so they endure only for a time. And afterward, when tribulation or persecution persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. It's a shallow reception of Jesus that expects... Let me say this right. It is a, it is a shallow understanding of salvation and Jesus that expects that the life of grace is the life free of suffering. Okay. The seed Jesus falls on ground that undergoes rockiness or stoning stone that undergoes a persecution. I moved a step ahead of myself a moment ago. I walked you into that fiery furnace that really belongs in this passage because Jesus says, this is the man who doesn't endure persecution, the man who doesn't endure tribulation. I think that could also be interpreted the person who doesn't think that's indicative of the grace of God and of the favor of God. I'm here to tell you, I don't want to bust any bubbles, but this is the kind of thing needs to be said in the pulpit. Life is suffering, even for believers, especially for believers. Life is suffering. You go, yeah, but I'm a grace person and I just believe in the favor of God. Well, good luck believing in the favor of God that excludes suffering because suffering happens. Yes. Suffering happens. It happens to everyone. Wouldn't it be better to face suffering with meaning? Yes. yes, Let me ask you that again. Wouldn't it be better to have a reason when you're going through something? Right. Maybe the reason would bring you out. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. The word was God. What's word logos? What's logos meaning? Wouldn't it be better to have some meaning? Than to have no meaning at all. If you had meaning, you'd be able to face whatever fire and whatever tribulation you had because you would know there was a a purpose. Not God's trying to teach me something, but rather God will never leave me here to learn on my own. Stop looking at every bad thing in your life and going, God must be trying to teach me a lesson. No, instead, God will not leave me here to learn this lesson by myself. God will walk through this lesson with me. God doesn't have to hit me to teach me anything, but he'll never let me get hit without him getting hit. God doesn't have to break my leg to teach me something, but he'll never let my leg be broken where he doesn't let his leg be broken. If if I face it, he faces it. That's me picking up my cross and realizing that whatever I suffer through, Jesus suffers through with me, no matter what it is. He also says that sometimes it falls on thorny ground or ground with thorns. Verse 18, these are the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires of other things entering up. Choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And this thorny ground is defined in verse 19 as the cares of life or the deceitfulness of money or riches or possessions or comfort and the desire for other things. These are the worldly things. And I want you to catch this. These are the worldly things that exist in the same realm as the kingdom. Jesus is not sowing seed, and the seed is the kingdom, and everything outside of it is outside of the kingdom. No, the seed hits all ground because the kingdom has hit all ground, and in hitting all ground, the kingdom of God is permeating throughout the earth. What happens oftentimes is that our focus moves away from the kingdom of God, away from that which is invisible, away from from his power and onto the cares of this life onto the things of this world and that begins to choke out what Christ wants to do in our life. But here's what happens when we read this story and think that we are the point, is that we sit in congregations and try to figure out which ground we are. Am I being thorny? Am I being stony ground? Is the devil eating up the word? God, help me to do better, to receive Jesus more purely. When in reality, the story is not about you inspecting to see which ground you are alone. It is about that. That has to exist. But it's not all it's about. What it means is that Christ, the crucified, resurrected, ascended Christ has permeated all soil and we need to let the word do the work instead of us doing the work because wherever we do the work, we choke out life. When we do the work, we get obsessed with money. When we do the work, we get obsessed with the cares of this life. When we do the work, we get obsessed with persecutions. We get obsessed with the news. We get obsessed with politics. We take our focus off the fertile soil of of the Christ that lives in us, and we try to go to work as a good gardener. And all we do is interfere with the work of grace because we keep incorporating more and more and more of our stuff into the message until there's nothing left of Jesus. And it is why Jesus is the hardest thing to find in the church. You come into the church and you can find all kinds of stuff. Walk into the American church tomorrow morning on a Sunday morning and you will find politics. You will be told what's happening in the rest of the world and why it affects your future home in heaven. You will be made to fear the end of the earth. You will be encouraged to fund someone's dream. Yes. Right. Yeah. You'll be preached to about someone else's vision. You'll be recruited. Yeah. You'll be signed up. You'll be used. That's right. You'll be burned in a fire. That's designed to destroy anything and everything that walks into it, but you'll have a hard time finding Jesus. That's right. And in many of our places, when you do find him, he'll be wrapped in a flag. Yep. Carrying a gun. Yes. And with the Constitution rolled up under his other arm. Yes. And singing the national anthem. That's right. That's right. And you'll have a hard time finding the Jesus who goes to the cross. Yes and lays his life down for his enemy, who tells you to turn the other cheek and carry the load two miles when they ask for one. He'll be the hardest character to find. You'll find the Holy Ghost, but you'll find the version who only knows how to point out sin, never the version that knows how to point out your identity. You'll hear the gifts of the Spirit and you'll hear them used to show who's sinning but you'll never hear them used to show exhortation, edification, and comfort, though that's what Paul said was the only reason they ought to be used in the first place. Right. And the reason for that is not because you'll need to do ground inspection, but because, get ready, you're all four types of ground. Yeah. You live on this earth. Sometimes you're choked out by your job and your stress and your stuff and your money and your greed and your jealousy. And sometimes you're just flat worn out by oppression and depression and being stepped on. And sometimes the enemy swallows up the things of God that were meant to move you and touch you and save you because you lose your focus and you fall into other categories instead of looking at Jesus. And sometimes you're fertile soil and you bring forth 30-fold. And sometimes you do even better and bring forth 60 fold. And sometimes you do even better and bring forth 100 fold. And here's the kicker you never knew how you did it. Yeah. It was always Jesus. Yeah. That's right. It's when you think you've come up with a formula for being good ground that brings forth 30 fold, 60 fold, and 100 fold is when you know you're going to mess the seed up. Yeah. That's right. That's the moment. When you've got a formula that you know you've lost what it means to let the seed do its work. It does its work, just leave it alone. Let's bring Jesus back to the spotlight in the church. Let's bring Jesus back to the centerpiece. To where when people to where people go, I want to go because I want to see Jesus. I want to go find who Jesus is. Can I land with you in Galatians chapter 5? Because I want to show you the sower. You remember what I told you earlier, the reason why we often read that story is because we already know where it's going in the in the New Testament. Okay, well let's go there. Real quick. All right. When you go to Galatians five, I wanna land with, with this. Just this thought from the Apostle Paul. I honor your time. I'm not those guy I'm not a guy that stands up here and, and keeps you for ninety minutes or two hours. I know we think that's super holy, but a lot of times it's just a a lot of times it's just a way to get people mad enough not to come back to the next service. So Galatians chapter five, verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contention, jealousy, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambition, dissension, heresies, envy, murder, drunkenness, revelries, and the like of which I tell you beforehand, just as I've told you in time past that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do you know why they are evident in verse 19? You don't have to bring them up. Everybody knows them. Paul brings them up anyway as a way of doubling down on his message, he goes, they're evident. Listen, you know, this ain't right. You know, adultery, you don't have to reread them, but I'll run through them for you again. You know, you know, these are wrong. You don't need me to get up here. And t- you know how wrong they are? Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, adultery, sorcery, hatred, et etc., etc, etc, etc. Because It's evident that they only came out of you. They didn't come out of God. That's what he means by your flesh. By the way, your flesh is not some cosmic thing that demons are running. It's everything you put your hands to, even if you think it's spiritually good. Have you ever asked yourself why in John 15, Jesus says, if a, if a branch brings forth good fruit, my father prunes that branch. So it brings forth better fruit. Why does he prune branches with good fruit? Because a lot of us are doing good things that aren't bringing forth the fruit of the spirit. Oh, it's bringing forth stuff, but it isn't what He wants. And so it's good, it's churchy, it's holy, it's moral, but all it is is a work of our effort and our flesh, and it's why we end up with, oh, maybe we end up with, selfish ambition at the end of verse 20. See, nobody gets up in the pulpit and preaches against that one. I mean, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, uncleanness, adultery, fornication, lewdness, bless God. All these are of the devil. Nobody mentioned selfish ambition. You want to know why that's in there? Because that comes out of good. That comes out of trying to do good. I just want to do good for the kingdom. And a lot of times it's, I want my face on a billboard. We just want to build something for God, but we really just want to be known as the pastor with three churches. And you go, yeah, but it's really good. I know! That's the problem! It's me sticking my hands in the garden to try to help the seed grow. And it's selfish ambition. And so there it is. But the fruit of the Spirit, verse 22, is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is a law. Why doesn't He say they're evident? He says the flesh ones are evident. Why does he say the fruit of the Spirit are evident? Because every one of them is invisible. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. I don't mean they stay invisible. I mean you can't put your hands on them. You can't put your hands on joy. You can't put your hands on peace, but you know it when you see it. You can't put your hands on love, but you know it when you feel it. Right. You can't put your hands on self-control, but get around someone with self-control. They'll be so odd that they'll stick out. Get around the non-retaliatory response and you won't know what to do with it. It's not evident. Where'd that come from? I don't know. Why? Because it's not evident. You want to know where it came from? The disproportionately sized seed who dwells in the dark and does its work when you get your hands off of it. That's letting Jesus be your love, your joy, your peace, your gentleness, your kindness, your goodness. Against such, there is no law. I don't know how to stop you, Paul says. The law is designed to refrain you. Against that stuff, there's no law. There's no limits to how big your joy could get. There's no limits to how much peace you could have. There's no limits to how much love you could walk in. The seed is disproportionate to the end result against such. There is no law. Why is it that joy is a fruit of the spirit? And a lot of us have never met a Christian with any of it. Now I got another question for you. Why is it that some of our heroes who were quote unquote full of the Holy Ghost had no joy. If joy is a fruit of the spirit, are we sure they had joy? the Holy ghost. Yeah, yeah. Let me tell you, they were full of it. It just wasn't what they thought they were full of. <laughs> There's no way around this folks. The seed hits all ground. Yes. The seed hits all ground. Let the seed go to work. This is going to start to come out. That's right. Amen. So what's the takeaway? Jesus. Hits all ground, which means he has hit my ground, which is sometimes thorny and sometimes rocky, granted, and sometimes it's good, but I mess it up. I make it so when I put my hands into it, if I could learn to let Jesus be in me, what Jesus is, oh, what I might be against such, there would be no law, no limits. I want to see limitless Christianity. Let the Holy Spirit do limitless work from just a little bit of Jesus. You don't have to know much. You don't have to have a lot of scripture memorized. You don't have to know Greek and Hebrew. You don't have to know how to quote the Bible frontwards and backwards. You just presented Jesus. The word is Jesus. A little goes a long way. Try it out. Try it out. Just a little Jesus goes a long way. Father, thank you tonight for the word. What a spectacular journey. Father, tonight I have sensed you working in such a powerful way. And I just want to get out of the way. Let you do your, what you do. Specifically tonight, Father, I, I, I think we stepped into the heartbeat of this sermon when we walked into the fire. And we know that you walked in with us. Somebody here tonight needed to know that the fire doesn't mean they've lost their way. It means they're right where they need to be. The fire doesn't mean they're in the wrong room. It means they're in the right room and the seed nobody could see is about to go walking around with them in the middle of that fiery furnace. Burn off of us, whatever doesn't need to be there. We pray you do your work in Jesus' name. Amen.